0: The Apostle Paul writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, who also will do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I implore you by the Lord. To have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Imagine the moment that the reader of this letter to this first church finished the letter. Imagine that moment as he finished reading the final words of the Apostle Paul to the church of Thessalonica. What would be the major impression that that letter would have? On that church. Uh, what, what would the average person sitting in that congregation walk away on that day thinking about? Well, I ju- we just heard a letter from the Apostle Paul, even God's Word, inspired scripture, written directly to us, and he said many things to us. He gave us all these commands. And he, he repeated and he reviewed our relationship with this godly man, this apostle. And he provided so much encouragement for us, gave us so much practical direction. In this relatively short letter, what, what should we be taking away from that? And, and we can ask the same question today. W- with any book in the Bible, you should know that there is a major impression that that book is meant to make upon you. So God knows you can't remember every single word, every jot and tittle in the scripture. And just as every verse has a message, uh, every book also has its own message. So when we talk about the Gospel of John or the book of Deuteronomy or the Psalms, uh, all these books, they have one dominant message. And together, all the books in the Bible are meant to, to form you into a complete, balanced, and mature Christian. And so we need all these books and the messages of all these books shaping our lives. And so as we close out 1 Thessalonians it's fair to ask that question. What is the dominant impression this book should be making on me? Uh, My pastor obviously got a lot and he went through all these details at times in different doctrines and and commands. But uh, what are the main things God would have me focus on? Paul actually anticipates this question that you might have as we close out this letter, this book in the Bible. And his conclusion to the letter is meant to answer that question. It's meant to echo and remind you of the major themes of the book and also give you a few final commands that will set you into the future, set you moving into the future on the right path. And so the conclusion before us summarizes the message of 1 Thessalonians and also tells us how to respond to it. And so let's consider that now. How should we respond to what we've heard in this letter? Um, The first two verses that we read, verse 23 and 24, they have to do with prayer. So Paul is praying. He's pronouncing this prayer for the church and then also asking them to pray for him. And so we can we can begin by saying, well, our first response, apparently, should be prayer, uh, but not just any prayer, because we could we could say that um, we could say that almost at any point in the Bible. Well, we should be praying because of that look there's an example of someone praying. You should pray. Uh, this prayer here is actually uh, more rich than that. There's a specific aspect of prayer that is coming out in this text. And so the first response that we should have to what we've heard in First Thessalonians is to pray confidently. We need to pray confidently. That's in verses 23 to 25. Pray confidently. What, what keeps someone from praying confidently? Well, I'm guessing that if you are constantly experiencing doubts and worries about Christ returning... I doubt you're going to be praying confidently. In other words, if, if you are unsure about the state of your soul and your own salvation, I doubt you're going to be praying these big, confident prayers we find in Scripture. Especially here, uh, we have an example of one of Paul's pastoral prayers. Right. So how can you pray confidently if you are worried that when Christ comes, he's going to look on you with a scowl, And punish you for being a pathetic Christian. Uh, You you didn't quite rise up to the level of what I expected. And so now you did not meet the qualifications to enter the kingdom. Um, If you are always worried about that, I doubt you're going to pray like this, like we read here. And so this letter is packed with comfort, with words of comfort. That's a major theme coming out of the book of 1 Thessalonians. This church was obviously very concerned about the return of Christ. And they had, there was confusion about the return of Christ. It was confusion about, well, what about my departed relatives? Will they participate in the re- resurrection? And they got worried about that. But then others were worried about themselves. Um, what if Christ shows up and I am not the elect after all? I'm not part of his people after all. There are major uh, percentages of this letter given to address those concerns, but also sprinkled throughout, there's all these encouragements. Listen to just a few of these, as we survey the letter. In the first chapter, Paul says God has elected you for salvation. In verse four, chapter one, verse four, God has elected you. He he told the church that he was sure that God had actually chosen them for salvation. That's comforting. Or the next verse in chapter 1, Paul said the power of the Holy Spirit was poured out on you at your conversion. So if you find yourself a Christian today, you should know that that was not accidental. That didn't just well up one day from the depths of your own goodness. That's actually the result of God's sovereign grace being set upon you. And his Holy Spirit uh, enabling you and empowering you to respond in faith to the gospel message. God is also calling you into his kingdom. So that's the effectual call. God is drawing you into his kingdom. It's not just this take it or leave it invitation, but it's actually God calling the Christian into the kingdom, not just a momentary response of faith, but all the way, all the way to final salvation as well. Paul says to the believers here, you will always live with the Lord at the end of verse 4. At the end of chapter four, chapter five, he calls them sons of light and sons of day. And he says, God did not appoint you for wrath, but for salvation. So again, the same encouragement. Why should I not be worried in light of Christ's return? Why should I not be be worried that he'll reject me? Well, it's because that I know God has actually appointed me. He's destined me for salvation. So he's planned my salvation. That's the ultimate comfort that I have as a Christian. And even beyond that, he tells the church to comfort each other. So in this section in verse in chapter four and five, remember we walked through that about the rapture and then about the day of the Lord coming in judgment. So that that section is addressing the return of Christ and the concerns the church had about the return of Christ. But and h- how does Paul end those sections? He ends both of those sections by saying, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So, not, don't just listen to this letter, but I want you to be comforting one another with these truths of salvation. And when we, we step back and think, Well, this isn't just Paul. Okay, we have to remind ourselves that, even though we are talking about Paul and the Thessalonians, this is God's word. And so, what does that mean? Okay, God wrote this letter for you to be 100% assured that Christ will receive you you when he returns. God would want you to be comforted. God is a God of comfort. Uh, He does not want you to be constantly in doubt and constantly afraid of your salvation, of the state of your soul. Uh, It's not a virtue. We we may think that sometimes, well, I'm so holy and godly, I'm constantly worrying about my salvation. That is not the way God would want us to to live. He would want all of his children to be fully assured that Christ will receive them. And we see that even in this prayer. So let's look at a few features of this prayer that that, uh, tell us that it's really a confident prayer. Paul says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. So notice he's calling on the God of peace and in in some translations it has the word himself and that's capturing something in the original language where it's emphasizing God. So he's not just saying, well, God will do this. He's saying God himself will do this. Uh, What will God do? Well, God is the one who makes peace. He's called the God of peace, not because he is peaceful himself, but because he's the God who produces peace. It's his work that he initiated, that he plans, that he accomplishes. He's the peacemaker, but he's also the finisher of our sanctification. And we we talked about that as well at the beginning of chapter four, that a major concern that God has for us, for our church and for us as individuals is our sanctification. In other words, just our obedience as Christians. It's a synonym for just Christian obedience, obedience to the the Lord's commandments. But notice here, whereas in the past we've seen all these commands, well, abstain from every form of evil. Uh, Don't repay evil for evil. Uh, Love one another, comfort one another, encourage one another, and, and more commands as well. Abstain from sexual immorality. We, t- to be honest, there are quite a few commands that the Christian has to keep in mind and to pursue. And But here, we are given a different perspective on all this. Uh, we're, we see that in spite of our own responsibility to obey all these commandments, uh, over and around us is God who's actually producing our sanctification. So the picture is not we do a little, God does a little, we do a little, God does a little, oh, we, we mess up, okay, God, he'll, he drops out of the picture. The picture is actually God undergirding our entire process of growth as Christians. All the way from where you are physically, where you live, um, when you came to salvation, uh, how you're going to finally overcome and, and defeat sin in your life, all of that is the result of God's sanctifying work, but notice that, that it's more than just a prayer for God to sanctify you. Uh, like I pray that as much as possible, and I know you've got a lot of issues. Uh, I know I pray that God will do something with you, that you'll you'll reach some level at least of holiness, of sanctification. Now, this prayer is actually a prayer for entire sanctification. It's pretty surprising that the prayer is actually that the God of peace would bring you to the, the full and final level of sanctification. Y- you may look at yourself and correctly judge. I am I'm pretty far away. Wherever the standard of perfection is, I am, I'm down here somewhere. And praise God, I started out down here, but okay, I'm, I am growing. I see growth, but still, I am so far away from that final level, that level of perfection that God is calling me to. And this prayer does not promise that we'll reach that in this life. So to be clear, it's not a prayer that immediately, right now, you will be completely sanctified. But the prayer is that finally on the day of Christ, when he returns, you will appear on that day completely sanctified. The work will have been completed. Uh, There will be no missing pieces there will not be a higher standard that you could have possibly attained and don't ask me how that how that's possible because honestly by experience if you were to think of the either yourself or the other believers that you've tried to help you may think that's a that's impossible you're you're saying that every christian will be fully sanctified in the end well the christians i know have a lot of problems Uh, The Christians I know are constantly taking one step forward, two steps back. One theologian writing hundreds of years ago even described the process as crawling, crawling forward. Uh, That's a very common experience, but this is a prayer of faith. So we're not praying this because it proves true from our experience. We're praying it because it's in Scripture, and so Paul prays confidently that God will finish the work of sanctification in these believers' lives. But notice he also says, may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. So God will also persevere. He will preserve his people. He will protect them. He will guard them. He will guard their spirit, their soul, and body. And just so to, to be clear, just so you know what Paul's getting at there, He's not trying to draw this minute distinction between your soul and your spirit. Uh, It's an expression that's implying the totality of who you are. Uh, That all of who you are will be fully protected and preserved and God will do that. And it's not that every physical aspect of your life, your finances, your body, etc. will be fully protected because, again, we're not promised those things in Scripture, but, but the thing that you have, your most valuable possession that you have right now is your faith. Right? Faith is what overcomes the world. Uh, faith is what obtains righteousness from God through Christ. Uh, we are saved by faith alone. And so if Satan wanted to destroy anything about you, if he wanted to damage fatally anything about you, it would be your faith. He would want to undermine your faith. And so, this prayer is, in a sense, a prayer that God would protect your faith. The result of all this is that you will be without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is, a, again, a striking picture. If I were to, if I were to tell you that, that this evening Christ is returning and you will stand before him this evening and give an account to him for your life, how would you feel? That's pretty sobering, isn't it? You would think there would be a a long list of things that I would be worried could come up in that interaction. Uh, I know I have not always responded the way I should to God's word. I know I've been playing with sin when I should have been fighting it and putting it to death. Uh, I've failed to do many things that I felt prompted to do, but I was too scared to do. I haven't really done much for Christ at all. But this prayer, which we're we're told will actually be fulfilled, is again, it's a promise. So Paul says, faithful is he who calls you, who also will do it. All these things he's praying for, he's fully assured that this will happen. And what is he assured will happen? Well, that you will in fact stand before Christ without any blame. That you'll appear before him, And so to speak, he'll bring out his list of blames or blemishes. And under your name, there'll be nothing there. There'll be nothing there. There'll be no accusations. There'll be no rebukes. Which is astounding, because there should be. (laughs) But we're, we're told here that the Christian will appear before the Lord Jesus Christ without blame when he comes, with not even the slightest blemish. And so this is a prayer that we can all pray confidently. And if you can't pray this confidently, again, you will be worried. You'll be, uh, have doubts. You will not live a victorious Christian life. You will probably be afraid because you're not really sure if God's on your side. And perhaps if you're, maybe someone here is not a believer. Uh, maybe you really haven't responded to the gospel yet. Uh, and so it's worth as- asking that question as well. It's worth searching your soul to see, have I really responded in the way that God is calling me to respond? And But once you detect even the smallest evidence or sign that you are, in fact, a Christian, you can bank on all of this. You can bank on all of these promises. A- and you can even know, just on a personal note, that that when you don't even feel like you could pray for yourself, that you feel like you're growing uh, slack and you're, you're, you're beginning to cool in your love for God. You can know that I'm praying for you, that, that I'm actually praying for all of you by name. These things, um, general prayers for sanctification, but even specifically what I know about your different situations. And so you have someone and not just me, other people at this church as well are committed to that, praying for all of us by name. And so you can know that just like this church had the Apostle Paul praying for them, and I'm no Apostle Paul, obviously, <laughs> you can know that I'm praying for you as well. And that should be an encouragement to you. And we are promised that God will complete all of these things, that he will bring the great work of sanctification and Christian maturity to its final stage. But then Paul also encourages them to pray for him. He, he begs them to pray for him, we could say, as well. In verse 25, just four words, brothers, pray for us. I think most of us think of the Apostle Paul and people like him as these huge figures. You know, if you were to, if I were to say, imagine a sculpture of the Apostle Paul. What would, what should that sculpture look like? Well, it should probably be 30 feet tall. And he should have bulging muscles and a huge Bible and a huge beard, and just this guy that uh, nothing would ever touch this guy. He just trampled through the Christian life. He just blasted through all opposition, never had any issues, never had any moments of weakness. Uh, but if you've read all of the New Testament, you would know that that's not an accurate picture of the Apostle Paul, especially 2 Corinthians. A, most, a lot of his weaknesses come out in that letter. He even talks specifically about them. And even at the beginning of that letter, he said that at one point in his ministry, he was so discouraged, he thought he was just going to die. He thought it was, it was game over. I guess I'm done. Um, so much opposition, so much discouragement. Uh, and at the end of his life in 2 Timothy, you know what, what is the great result of the Apostle Paul's ministry? What, uh, what friends did he have surrounding him at the very end of his life? Just Luke. Everyone else deserted him in the Mamertine prison in Rome where he was executed. He did not have an easy life. But again, we would be accurate to call him a great hero of the faith. Uh, Godly Christian pastors throughout history, even some of the most eminent ones, have also been men of weakness. They've been men who have the same faults that you have. Um... Spurgeon, a great preacher in the 19th century that many of us love, uh, he struggled with the, what we would call depression, and more than once he had to, he had to just throw in the towel and go take a vacation because he was so burdened, so discouraged. And these guys were the heads of great revivals. So the Apostle Paul, Spurgeon, many like them, uh, God used them so effectively, and so we could call these. The four-star generals, okay, of the church. And, it, and if these men begged people for prayer, how much more should the rank-and-file pastors, evangelists, Christian ministry workers, missionaries, etc., cetera, uh, pray, ask for prayer? And so I would ask you for prayer specifically for me. Um, you know, I'm not a robot that will just keep moving no matter what happens. I'm subject to the same things that you read about in Scripture. Um, Christian leaders in the the Scripture, both the Old and New Testament, have many weaknesses, and and I'm no different. And so I think it is worth giving you just a few points to be in prayer for for me and maybe other pastors you know, other missionaries, uh, people that are leading the charge, people that are uh, really focused on preaching the gospel clearly, and that is the first prayer request, and that's how Paul asked people to pray for him. So if we looked at the rest of the New Testament, we can see that when Paul asked people to pray for him, he had a few things in mind. And what was that? Well, primarily he his job was to preach the gospel. So Christ, again, he didn't give him a choice. He said, you are now the apostle to the Gentiles. I command you to go preach the gospel. So it wasn't just something that that welled up inside of him spontaneously, he was commissioned to do this, and he had no choice. And so Paul asked for people to pray for him, to, for the power to preach the gospel clearly and boldly. And even Christ had to appear to him more than once to encourage him. Don't be afraid, Paul. I, there's people here that will respond when you preach to them. They are going to respond. Keep going. I know all these people are opposed to you and you're getting run out of town and beaten all the time. But I have people where you're ministering. You need to keep preaching the gospel there. And so Paul prayed. He asked people to pray for him uh, to be able to preach in the way he ought to preach. Uh, But then you can also pray that there would be fruit as a result of the gospel ministry. That the word of God would not go forth void, that it wouldn't just be this mechanical exercise, but it would actually impact people, impact the community where we are, that people would respond to the gospel and come to faith in Christ, that Christians would grow and be built up in the faith and be equipped to minister to each other and to other people. But then also Paul asked for prayer uh, regarding protection from enemies. So everywhere he he went, he had opposition. And so he asked people to pray for him regarding that, that uh, Satan's servants, the enemies of the gospel, would not hinder him from bringing the gospel to a particular place or even from being able to continue ministering it in the same place over a longer period of time. And then finally, you can pray for my perseverance and the perseverance of all pastors and Christian leaders, missionaries that you know, uh, any, any pastoral conference that uh, you might listen to or go to, you'll hear the same thing in, in almost every one of those conferences. At some point, probably more than once, one of the preachers will get up there and they, they know who they're talking to. You know, they're not talking to um, just a, a general audience of Christians. They're talking to pastors. And so what do they usually say? Well, this last one I went to last year, uh, one of the preachers literally said, please don't leave the ministry. (laughs) Please don't leave the ministry. Don't leave the ministry. Uh, Don't leave because you're at a small church. Don't leave because people are turning on you. Don't leave because fireworks aren't going off uh, where you are. Uh, You need to be a man of faith, right? That God is calling us to minister in faith. Not that there will be these these great results necessarily every second of ministry. And that's what most people would want. You'd think, well, when I preach, there's just thousands of people uh, respond and all of a sudden it's the third great awakening. You know, that's what I think younger guys in seminary think is going to happen once they get out of a seminary, that <laughs> they're the next Apostle Paul, uh, but they're not. And so it's a lot of uh, it takes a lot of faith to persevere in ministry, and that is my heart and desire, is to persevere for decades, to be faithful, uh, to be zealous, uh, to be focused, uh, to really persevere in spite of the outward results, because there'll be times that are sweet, and there'll be hard times as well that may be leaner. And so we need to be in prayer for one another. We need to pray confidently uh, for one another, to fin- for God to finish that great work of sanctification and then also, I echo the, the request of the Apostle Paul here. Please pray for me and pray for uh, even the other elders working with me down at North Creek. That would be a specific application for us. But he also says we can respond by greeting each other warmly. Greeting each other warmly. So how should I respond to the gospel and this great message that Christ will fully receive me and accept me? What are the final commands and directions that God is giving me as I finish this letter? Well, first prayer, respond with confident prayer, but then also respond with warm fellowship. So God wants you to be in warm fellowship with other believers. And he says that here, he says, greet the brothers with a holy kiss, which seems almost like a throwaway verse. That's probably just the way they ended letters back then i uh, sign the Apostle Paul, greet one another with a holy kiss, goodbye. And so we can just dismiss it and, and not read any more into that or from that. Uh, but I don't think there is evidence that it was used that way. Um, it is for sure a way of him signing off, greet one another with a holy kiss, uh, but no part of Scripture is wasted. All the words of Scripture have some application for us. And we even see in 1 Thessalonians that there are some issues in the congregation. Okay, so he, he thought, based on Timothy's report, that he should address various issues such as sexual immorality, uh, the idea that people needed to be active and, and be involved in productive work. And if we read Second Thessalonians, which we won't do, we would see that Paul is, is addressing that, that issue of people being lazy, people living off other people, not working hard like they should, and actually calling the church to separate from them if they, if they don't respond to that, to those rebukes. And so there was at least some tension in this church, just like there is in every church, isn't there? Uh, every church... At some point, um, there's going to be tension. There's going to be subtle resentment. There will be conflict that may grow over time into church splits. And so the command to greet each other warmly is a great practical way to measure how you're doing with this in your church. As you just look around the room, maybe after the service, and it's, there's not a ton of people. It's fairly easy to do this here. And you just imagine the different people who, c- can I greet everyone here warmly? You know, can I really connect with everyone here warmly? Or is there, is there, so, is there one person here that I, I got issues with them, her, him? Or I, they said, last time I talked to them, they, said, they rubbed me the wrong way. They said something that, uh, that kind of offended me and they have not sought my forgiveness for that they seem to not even care or understand and so there's all these temptations in the church to to not do this and so this is a great practical barometer of how warm our fellowship really is and in the ancient world kissing was normal that's the first thing we we need to clarify so It was so normal that Jesus, when he visited a Pharisee's house, he even commented on that. He said, why are you, you are so amazed that this woman is here weeping and kissing my feet. Well, you didn't even kiss me at all. You didn't even give me this polite kiss that all hosts would give their guests. Implying that it was a very common practice in the ancient world. And so Paul is, is telling the church to continue practicing how their culture expressed physical affection. And friendship uh, among family and friends and so it's not a a, a command that needs to be put into play literally and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that even the sexes were separated in a lot of the early churches and in the synagogue that was a practice in the synagogue that the women would be on one side the men on the other uh, because they they would greet each other in this way warmly and not all Christians Felt comfortable exchanging kisses, men to women, and and all of that. And so they did wrestle with how to, to put this into practice as the centuries wore on. But at the very least, we can say that it is a physical gesture of some kind. You know, the first, we were learning manners uh, in homeschool recently. And what's the first manner? Uh, it's to smile. <laughs> the first manner how you can show friendliness towards someone and graciousness towards someone is to just smile when you see them. And so there's at least that a physical dimension to carrying out this command. But there's also a, a conversational element too. So we don't just give someone this mechanical greeting, um, a small hug or a handshake or pat on the back, but we actually express interest in them. We express interest in them There's one passage that that proves that that was part of the ancient greeting, this idea of friendly conversation. Jesus told his uh, original disciples when he sent them out on a preaching mission, he said, okay, I'm sending you out to preach. Don't greet anyone on the road. And so what was he saying when he said that? Was he saying as you pass by someone and someone recognizes you and they say, oh, hi, Peter, totally ignore them. Do not even acknowledge them. Is that what he was saying? No, he was not saying walk stone-faced, don't even acknowledge other travelers on the road. He was saying you don't have time to, to make small talk for a half hour about the weather and about someone's new grandchildren and, and all this, because that's what they would do. The Jews, when they would greet each other, they wouldn't just uh, kiss each other. They would spend time in conversation. How's your life? How's it going? How's your kids? How's your work? Uh, how's your health? And there would be not small talk necessarily, but a friendly conversation. And so that's how we can put this into practice too. To greet one another, but express genuine interest. And that is part of Christian maturity as well, is even in conversation, to be more interested in someone else than r- reporting our life. Because sometimes that's th- that's our initial reaction. We want to download to someone all the The blessings we've experienced. Oh, guess what? I got a new car. I got a new this or that. Um, We should just default to asking someone how life is, how their life is going. And we need to also watch out for the first signs of, of tension and resentment. That really is the path to unity, is that when you sense any kind of breaking of a relationship, is just address it. Just be gracious, be humble, and just address it. And greet one another warmly as well. Finally, he says, Switching tones quite dramatically, he says, I, so not we, he says, I implore you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. He says I, clearly implying, this is Paul directly, And a lot of commands in the letter he says we, but here he switches to I, and he possibly even could have written this with his own hand, whereas the rest of the, of the letter his secretary might have written, but he he says i adjure you or i implore you that word means to put someone under an oath a- and what's an oath well when you take an oath or when you swear an oath when one of our governing officials swear an oath they're actually invoking a higher power god they're invoking god to punish them if they break the oath pretty serious And seems to go a bit against the tone that we have just been talking about in the letter. Packed with encouragement. The letter is so packed with encouragement, but all of a sudden at the very end, Paul says, I put you under oath, who, well, uh, the elders of the church, I put you, the elders of the church, under oath to have this entire letter read to all the brothers. So he doesn't just say, pick out your favorite sentences from this letter and preach a 12-part series on your favorite parts of it he doesn't say have a smaller meeting you know a members only meeting or like the where the really serious people get together and read it to them he says read the whole thing to the whole church and some pastors I won't do this today but some pastors have even done that literally to their church they say well we're told to read the whole thing I'm going to read the entire letter of 1st Thessalonians front to back right now <laughs> So we won't do that today. I don't think it's necessary to do that. Uh, but we have read the entire letter as a church. And it is important that we, we consider this idea of pu- the public reading of Scripture. C- because that is something that we're, we've been doing as a church. And it's something that not all churches do. Not all churches do that. Some churches, they sing several songs. And, and not bad churches, okay? Just there's evangelical churches out there that are good and faithful but they don't practice this, where they read a significant portion of Scripture. So we have to ask, is that, is it fair to do that? I mean, I know this church was, was told to read the whole letter in one sitting in this particular occasion. But is it fair to get from that, that the Lord would actually have us continually be reading extended portions of Scripture? And I argue, yes. And we can go back to Moses... After he finished the law, it says, at the end of every seven years, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. So at the end of every seven years, all Israel uh, was to assemble, and at, and at some point they were to, to hear the entire law read to them. The entire thing. Genesis through Deuteronomy, supposedly. That practice continued as the Jews returned from exile back to the land and they, they attempted to reinstitute the worship of God at Jerusalem. How did they begin? How did they initiate that? Well, Ezra, the scribe, we read about in Ezra and Nehemiah, he initiated this revival among the Jews that returned by the public reading of Scripture. It says he called an assembly. The people assembled, they actually asked him to do this. They said, we want you to read the entire law to us. And so that's what he did. It says he read from it from early morning until midday. So we might spend three or four minutes reading a psalm or or a chapter in the Bible. This was hours. This was hours. Maybe they had a break in the middle. We don't know. But it says even children were there well, the kids can't take this. Some guy reading an extended portion of, they were there. The kids were there too. The women were there too. The men were there. The synagogues continued this practice. So between the Jews returning from exile and the time of the Lord Jesus Christ appearing on the scene, the synagogue was, was the major focus of worship for the Jews. And the synagogue practiced this. They would read from, The law from the book of Moses, the books of Moses, and they would also read something from the prophets, meaning the rest of the Old Testament. And so we may think, well, that's the synagogue. I mean, weren't they a bunch of Pharisees and weren't they heretics and all that? Well, yeah, a lot of them were eventually, but but not through that entire time period. And actually, Jesus in Luke chapter four, he participated in that practice. He publicly read scripture. Remember Isaiah? He read Isaiah in Luke 4, and that was part of the liturgy of the, of the synagogue. So Jesus endorsed that practice. In 1 Timothy 4, we, uh, we find numerous instructions to a Christian pastor, so to Timothy, but really by extension to every Christian pastor. And so what is the primary concern that the Christian pastor should have? You may think, well, we need to figure out how to grow this thing as big as possible. That's the number one goal. Or we may think, uh, well, counseling. The, the, the pastor needs to be available all the time for, for counseling. Anytime you can call the pastor and he'll come over for hours and, and talk to you. And again, that is a, uh, a very important part of, of shepherding. And it's good. Okay, but what is the main thing? If, we, we, if we're going to rank pastoral responsibilities, what's at the very, very top? That passage says that the pastor needs to give himself to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation and teaching. So to preaching and teaching, but what's first, what's first on the list is the public reading of Scripture. And for Timothy to hear that command, he would have in context what we just saw in the Old Testament, in the synagogue, and even at the time of Christ, how the people of God worshipped God and read the Scripture publicly. And so he would take that as, we need to continue doing that. We need to continue reading from the Bible. Some churches can take this, um, they can make this a part of a dead mechanical liturgy. And so that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about, well, we're all going to take turns and read four different chapters in the Bible, and the sermon's going to shrink down to five minutes, because a lot of denominations do that. And so that's good they're reading the Bible, but it's not, it's not being mixed together with faith. It's not being mixed together with understanding or with sincere worship. So we're not talking about that. But, but we are talking about committing ourselves to reading extended portions of Scripture together. And so as we did today, I read a little from Romans at the beginning and then Psalm 25. And you can know I want to continue that practice and I want our church to really be committed to that, to, um, to be committed to Listening to God speak to us directly because sometimes the sermons they will be on a a Relatively small portion of scripture like some of the sermons in first Thessalonians Uh, But sometimes they'll be longer like next week. It'll probably be a whole chapter in the Old Testament Um, And so even as we go through those smaller Passages we need to make sure we're we're constantly exposing our mind to God's thoughts in their original connection And we can understand them if we, if we simply read them. And so why should we do this? So it's obvious both from history and from practice in the Bible that this, is, this should mark public worship, whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New Testament era. But why is this so important? It, it's so important because Christ needs to be reigning in the church. So Christ needs to be allowed to speak in his own house pastors go off the rails pastors introduce all sorts of worldly stuff into the church but what would happen if they were committed to the public reading of scripture they'd eventually get to first corinthians which that would say the the word of the cross is foolishness to those who believe and so it's hard when you are uh in a, a rut of disobedience as a church to constantly be reading scripture. And so that's why this practice will usually fall out of practice in an unhealthy church, uh, which is is sad. But also for understanding. So we need to read scripture uh, because we need to have the whole Bible in our mind and our understanding. And I want to model that for you from the front, how you should be going through the scripture as an individual. I really encourage you to go through the books in the Bible, just sequentially, and just just read through it, and you will be surprised as you continue doing that, and you remain committed to that practice. How much you will absorb over the years—it will be a lot more than you that you may think. Uh, God's thoughts should be read in their original connection. Um, it's very important that we do that, and so that's how we plan to ap- apply this as a church. We plan to continue doing that as a church. And, and I even ha- feel a burden to, to be in different parts of the Bible. And even reading the Psalms, uh, it will take us quite a while to get out of the Psalms. And I love the Psalms. But I even feel a burden to, to alternate, as long as we only have one service, uh, to also bring in some New Testament readings as well. So you can expect a, a bit of change there. I want to continue going through the Psalms. Uh, but also possibly alternate from the the New Testament as well. And so we've seen these final commands is that we should respond to the message to this book in these three ways. Uh, In other words, God is telling you, if you only commit yourself to these three things, okay, whatever you do, if you forget other commands, because you'll forget some of them, here's three things to focus on it, to keep your, your grip on. One is prayer, to pray confidently, approach God as a father. But two is fellowship. We saw that with the greeting, They need to greet one another. God expects you to be in a local fellowship. And so you can't greet one another with a holy kiss if you are, if there, there are no one another's. There's no others, <laughs> it's just you. And so God expects you to be in fellowship. And so I would encourage you, and God would, would want you remain in a fellowship of other believers, of imperfect believers. And then finally, the Word of God, that the center of your week should be the public worship of God. And what's the center of the public worship of God? Well, it's the reading of God's Word. And so keep your grip on God's Word. God's Word needs to be at the center of the church you attend. It needs to be at the center of your life. And we saw that last week, how that's the ultimate priority of a church. And so we've now walked through the entire book of 1 Thessalonians together. And so, just to remind you, the, the main impression this should make on you is that you should joyfully anticipate the return of Christ. Th- there is no reason for a Christian to be afraid as, the, as you look forward to Christ's return. And notice the, the very, very last verse. It says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. What's the one word that God would want ringing in your ears as you leave today and as we go from this book to other places? What's the the one word that should be ringing ringing in your ears? It should be the word grace. That ultimately the the Christian life is lived in a sphere of grace. And there's many errors. There's many people that uh, presume on God's grace, that that assume that there there is no judgment and all. He's just universally gracious. And so we, as more reformed people, can be, pro- can be prone to um, not magnify the grace of God the way we should. We don't want an unbeliever to get the impression that God is gracious to them if they're outside of Christ or they're rebelling against God knowingly and presumingly. Uh, but even with all those concerns, we, we can't underestimate or we can't downplay the grace of God in the Christian life. That's how the letter began, didn't it? with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God would even want you, and think specifically about you, the specific things that you are most struggling with, the the things that are most plaguing you in terms of your own walk with God and your own growth and holiness and sanctification. And and you may have quite a lot of work to do, but God would want you to approach all of that with the understanding that his grace is going to carry you to the end. That it's not your effort that is going to finally be the deciding factor on whether or not you persevere in the faith, whether you grow, whether you overcome various things, but it is the grace of God and his grace alone. Our Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that even all of these commands you've given to us in a relationship of grace that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, Even before we had the slightest desire to come to you, even before that, you, you had already accomplished and secured our salvation. And so we do pray that you would give us supernatural power to make progress as Christians and to give attention to specific things in this letter. I pray that everyone here would come away with practical help, practical encouragement, Uh, a specific place in their life that they need to give attention to. We also pray that you would protect and preserve those who could not gather with us today, Uh, those of us that are sick or or elderly or not doing well or just prevented uh, from attending through providence. We pray that you would be with them, uh, that you would preserve them and protect them and grow them. I thank you for your words and especially your words of comfort to us from this great book. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.